What do UK farmers think of the possible ground solar ban? And what are Italy PM Maloney's climate goals? Welcome to the Climate Recap from the Beckosphere Climate Corner, your go-to place for international and U.S.-based climate news. I'm Becky Hogue, a climate communicator. Today is Wednesday, October 26th. Let's jump right into today's news. Let's start with some extreme weather events. Hundreds of residents in New South Wales have been told to evacuate as more torrential rains fall today and yesterday. The area has already experienced five floods in 12 months. Rivers and dams are at capacity. These rain events are a combination between a rare triple La Nina and climate change. Meanwhile, Cyclone Citrang just slammed into Bangladesh's west coast, killing at least 15 people and destroying infrastructure. Power went down for 8 million people and about 6,000 hectares of cropland have been damaged. The populous country is particularly vulnerable to the effects of climate change, which has noticeably increased how much rain dumps in the area during an extreme weather event. I was wrong to say that the Atlantic hurricane season was over because Rosslyn begged to differ. Category 3 Rosslyn impacted Mexico's west coast Sunday, killing at least three people. It brought heavy rains all the way to the center of the country, triggering flash floods and landslides. Nearly 100,000 people lost power. We have one climate study today. The International Institute for Sustainable Development, or IISD, recently echoed what the IEA has said, highlighting the consensus from all relevant studies that there is no room for new fossil fuel projects in the future if we are to keep warming at 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. We are currently at 1.1. The report looked at 97 studies that offered feasible decarbonization paths that would keep us under or at 1.5 degrees Celsius and noted what these pathways said about new oil and gas development. These pathways came from organizations like the IEA, as well as private sector sources, including the fossil fuel company BP. Bottom line, each of the pathways lined up with a decarbonization expectation for existing and developing fossil fuel infrastructure. But when proposed projects were added, we clearly passed that threshold. Even BP's pathway, which saw fossil fuel emissions peaking in 2025, sees very little room for new projects. And frankly, its pathway sees a higher rise in fossil fuel projects than any other pathway, but then a steeper drop to reach the 1.5 degrees Celsius target, which means more stranded assets along the way. Let's move on now to the climate victories. Australia joined the global methane pledge made during last year's UN climate conference COP26 to drop methane emissions by 30% by 2030. Methane is 84 times better at trapping in heat than CO2 for the first 20 years during the atmosphere and is responsible for about a quarter of global warming. Methane mainly comes from fossil fuel operations like flaring, which is where they burn off gas, but sometimes they don't, and also from like leaky fossil fuel infrastructure. And it's also from agricultural production from land use changes and like cow burps. Australia has become the last of the top agricultural commodity exporting countries to join, the others being the US, Brazil, and Indonesia. Pledgers now represent 30% of global methane emissions and 60% of global GDP. This pledge is non-binding, but Australia provided almost $2 billion from its National Reconstruction Fund to support low emissions technology and component manufacturing manufacturing and agricultural methane reduction. It's a little confusing, though, because there was a senior minister that insisted that the government will not impose any carbon levies or taxes on farmers, and joining the pledge won't mean Australia will have to reduce livestock, which is like the main one of the main sources of methane emissions from the agricultural sector. So how does that work? 
Former UK PM Trust was working on banning solar panels from farmlands before she stepped down, arguing solar was reducing the land available for farming. Now even landlords have begun pushing back on this ban. Members of the Country Land and Business Association, which represents 33,000 landowners, recently told The Guardian that they like ground solar because it can help them save and make money in their less productive land. It also provides an additional financial stability during less productive years. The farmers say that they like the flexibility of solar too, as they can either add panels to their land temporarily or as a permanent addition. And the association said the panels don't fully make the land useless for agricultural purposes either. Here's what the CLA president said. Quote, there is no reason as to why the area underneath it shouldn't be grazed with sheep, but it could also provide very good habitat for farmland birds and increase biodiversity to help the environment. I don't see that saying with the strike of a pen that we are going to exclude this land. I don't see that it helps, and I think that it is unlikely to help food security in any case. Instead, he pointed to rooftop solar subsidies as the area the UK government should focus on in the solar realm. What do you think of the potential ground solar ban. Do you think that the new PM Rishi Sunak will continue with the plan? He did just ban fracking, so that's also a really good piece of news. Let's look at the UK financial sector now. Last Thursday, Britain's biggest domestic bank, Lloyd's, announced that it would stop directly financing the development of new oil and gas fields. This came not too long after the UK government announced it would auction off 100 new North Sea exploration licenses. This change to Lloyd's climate policies would still allow the bank to generally lend to fossil fuel companies, just not for new projects. Lloyd's fossil fuel financing portfolio is already smaller than its British counterparts. It provided about one billion pounds or $1.1 billion of finance to commercial oil and gas customers last year, which represents about 0.2% of its portfolio. In the U.S., a Missouri appeals court upheld President Biden's right to impose a social cost of carbon on emissions-heavy activities, mainly because he hasn't even had the chance to really do it yet. The social cost of carbon is the average cost emitting a metric ton of carbon would have on the economy and human and environmental health. Obama was the first to institute this price, which his administration put at $51 per metric ton of carbon, which is actually less than half of what experts say is a more accurate number, but it still makes an economic deterrence, at least compared to Trump's, because Trump then lowered it down to $10 when he took office. Biden tried to bring it back up through an executive order back in February 2021, and right away, 13 state attorney generals sued the Biden administration over this move, claiming the social costs use would lead to a burdensome restriction on farmers and manufacturers. The Obama-elected appeals court judge told the AGs that they can't lay a case on merely generalized grievances without being able to point to a particular act by the administration. If you think this sounds familiar, it's because previously seven AGs sued Biden for attempting to implement the social cost, calling it government overreach. In this instance, a Trump-appointed Louisiana federal judge sided with the AGs, though then this ruling was overturned by a different appeals court and the Supreme Court actually affirmed the appeals court decision. So it got like double support that he can use it. So it's crazy that there's been another one. It'll be interesting to see if the AGs will try to bring this case back to the Supreme Court and if the Supreme Court, which has been changed slightly since then, would say something different. And in the private sector, Apple announced that it would decarbonize its supply chain by 2030 and expand its clean energy production. The company's corporate offices already run on clean energy, and the company claims that it has been directly carbon neutral since 2020. 
but indirect emissions through its supply chains overshadow what direct emissions the company creates, so that's the next target. Decarbonizing this sector means getting more than 200 suppliers to knock out their direct emissions relating to producing Apple-related products. The company says that more than 70% of its supply chain companies are already on board with that. Apple also wants to install 3,000 gigawatt hours of renewable energy across Europe each year by 2030 to make up for the electricity used by Apple customers. Apple already announced renewable projects in the US and Australia earlier this year too. There are more aspects to this initiative, which you can find linked in the source section below because that is too much for me to cover in one video when I have other things to talk about. Like, Italy's new Prime Minister Maloney wants to make climate change a right-wing issue. Quote, the right loves the environment because it loves the land, the identity, the homeland. Okay. She says that carbon emissions can be lowered without having to sacrifice the economy or jobs, but she thinks that the left is going about it all wrong. In June, she told a crowd of supporters, quote, Greta Thunberg's ideology will lead us to lose thousands of companies and millions of jobs in Europe. We have been told over the years that there is no alternative to ecological ideology, that it will make us live a cleaner world, but they're wrong or lied to us because we now realize that our energy dependence is dramatic and that the transition to electric without controlling the raw materials will make us even more dependent on China than we are on Russia. Interesting. I don't remember Greta saying anything about relying on China being good, but okay. <laughs> Encouraging domestic production's a good goal, so. Maloney iterated her support of Italy's net zero by 2050 goal when her far-right party Brothers of Italy signed the International Center-Right Climate Action Declaration. Yes, that's a thing, started by British PM Tom Tugendhat. By signing it, the political party commits to, quote, ambitious market-friendly climate action that significantly reduces emissions within this decade to reach net zero emissions by mid-century. It also supports providing climate financing to emerging economies. That's about as specific as it gets, but I'm pleasantly surprised by what I read. This pledge is meant to be signed by the world's conservatives, Christian Democrats, classical liberals, and free marketeers, according to the site. And if you're wondering, no, the U.S. Republican Party or Bolsonaro's Liberal Party, they have not signed that. I'm shocking. I, I know. <laughs> so we know Maloney supports reaching net zero emissions by 2050 and supporting developing countries financially. Anything else? Well, the Brothers of Italy manifesto released right before the election vaguely references climate commitments and the need to limit the over-exploitation of resources. It also showed support for boosting reforestation and increasing public transportation adoption. The administration doesn't currently have a clear plan for reducing emissions by 2030, though. On the flip side, Maloney likes to bash the EU's Green New Deal, calling it climate fundamentalism. That's a new one for me. She's unconvinced that the previous Italian government put climate funding to good use and wants it to be reviewed. 37% of the EU's COVID relief package to Italy must go to clean energy transition efforts, according to the EU. It's not really clear if she can actually do anything about the money, though, at this point, because I think it's already mostly been implemented. But that's about all I know from her so far. This is by far the most I've learned about her and her climate policies. I don't know why it took us so long, because, like, some of the quotes that were being talked about were like months ago and I couldn't find any of this coverage before. So thank you Politico for actually talking about it because I was wondering what her climate policies were this whole time and they're not as bad as I expected. She's still far right, so there is that. Let's move on to the climate fails. Remember, don't get despondent. 
get mad. We have to talk more about COP27 updates. Remember, COP27 is the large UN climate conference taking place in Egypt on November 6th. And Egypt is constantly showing us why we should not have allowed them to be host of this conference. We already talked about how Human Rights Watch reported Egypt is successfully silencing all of its domestic climate activists, educators, and scientists. Now, Egypt announced that it won't allow any event space on the first Monday of that conference, which is basically the first day because the uh, first day is really Sunday, but you know, Sunday just never really counts. It's like the first day. Pavilions are usually places where NGOs, climate activists, scientists, celebrities, and politicians alike can exchange ideas outside of formal talks. NGOs have strategically prepared their event to align with the topics leaders are covering each day of that two-week conference and are worried cancellation will undermine the role of non-state actors at the event. Doing this on practically the first day of the conference definitely will take away some of the initial momentum of the event. So, yikes. Another annoying fact about the conference is that the American PR firm Hill and Knowlton has been working with Egypt to organize it. Hill and Knowlton has helped the 12 members of the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative, which includes ExxonMobil, Shell, Chevron, and Saudi Armaco. Basically, it's been helping them greenwash themselves and disseminating climate misinformation over the decades. Last month, the UN Secretary General Gutierrez called out the PR giant for, quote, raking in billions to shield the fossil fuel industry from scrutiny. Just as they did for the tobacco industry decades before, lobbyists and spin doctors have spewed harmful misinformation. Fossil fuels need to spend less time adverting a PR disaster and more time adverting a planetary one. Good one. Hill and Knowlton have also helped Coca-Cola greenwash themselves, which is appropriate since Coca-Cola is sponsoring COP27. Coca-Cola has been continuously named one of the top plastic polluters in the world. The PR company was satirically given an F award by the campaign group Clean Creatives. Switching gears, let's go back to Australia. Former staff members of the Bureau of Meteorology allege that the climate conversation there has been basically banned from the organization's walls. When The Guardian looked into it, they found that there have been several complaints of this nature made to both the Bureau and the union. One of the former members, Professor Powers, which is a great name, who worked at that Bureau for 25 years, said that this has impacted Australians' citizens. Quote, as a result, the Australia public has been far less informed on climate change than they should have been. It is a leading technical agency in the country, and it has been cowering in the corner when it comes to climate change. He points to the BOM's chief executive, Johnson, for this uncomfortable climate. Johnson was elected back in 2016. The UK government is proposing a de facto windfall tax on energy companies, including low-carbon energy companies like wind and solar. Renewable companies are concerned that this would have a catastrophic consequence on the industry, which hasn't been making those same pure profits that fossil fuel companies have during this war. The industry's trade group Energy UK said this initiative would tax revenues, not profits, making it harder for clean energy to make profits. This would then hurt the clean energy expansion. Also, quote, the windfall tax for oil and gas producers contains generous exemptions through an investment allowance. No such provisions exist with the revenue cap. Sounds like it's questionably designed to me. And in the U.S., Biden's effort to funnel $2.8 billion towards developing critical mineral mining domestically might be in vain. Industry investors, executives, and consultants told Reuters the money can't really be used until the federal government streamlines permitting processes. Right now, it can take up to 10 years to get a mining permit in the U.S. 
Quote, the U.S. government is saying go, 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 but the environmental review process is extremely cumbersome. That was Jerry Hicks at the Optica Rare Earths and Critical Materials ETF. Some things are easier to get permits for than others. For example, recycling plants are easier to get through than open pit mines. Might encourage a more closed loop system than question mark? Mines are often rejected by Biden himself, usually because of environmental concerns or because it violates indigenous land rights. Centralist West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin proposed a permit streamlining proposal a few months ago, but it was shot down by Republicans and Democrats alike. Democrats were concerned it would loosen environmental protections, while Republicans didn't want to support anything that would support the Inflation Reduction Act. Manchin will likely try again, though, later this year. It seems like a really difficult topic because you don't want to compromise the environment for the climate, but also you gotta eventually approve things. Let's finish off today's episode with an update on one of the stories in the last episode. Remember how I said that France was considering joining the Netherlands and other EU countries in pulling out of the Energy Charter Treaty? Well, they already did. And now there's discussion that Germany might possibly leave too. If you don't know what I'm talking about, Listen to that last episode next. It's a big deal and it's a really good thing. Finally, if you're on Twitch, join me on Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time to talk about the top U.S. Senate races. We're going to do the same thing that we did with the top House races and look at each candidate's climate positions. And that was your climate recap for Wednesday, October 26th. If you like the work I do, please follow this podcast, give it a five-star rating, leave a review, and consider checking out the Becosphere Climate Corner YouTube channel. Remember to talk about the climate crisis every single day and to support your local news organizations. Bye for now.